number of years ago, I had a young student come back from her first semester of college, and she came down after the service. We were living in the Washington, D.C., Northern Virginia area, and she came down after the service all eager to tell me about her first semester in college, her professors, uh, the fun she was having, and a lot about her roommate situation. And the eagerness was obvious. She wanted to talk about all that was going on, and being a pastor, preacher, religious kind of person, of course, I had to ask her the question, have you found some group of believers? Have you found a parachurch group? Have you found a church by now? Or have, you, have you checked things out? And her credit she had, and she was telling me about some of her experiences and her roommates, of course, coming from very different backgrounds. And as we talked, she used a phrase, this is 15 plus years ago. She said to me, you know, but I've learned that it's, it's whatever's true for you. And now, I don't do diplomacy well. I never have, probably never will at this age of my life. I could never play poker with sunglasses and a hat, and I just can't do it because my facial expressions go when people say things like that. And so I began to sort of unpack that with her standing down in front of an auditorium and said, where are you in this whole process? And the more we talked, the more depressed I became. That was a good 15 years ago, and I would say as we've come forward in time, the average college freshman within the first year of his or her education not only hears that, but believes it and accepts it as normative. Whatever's true for you, whatever you believe, be true to yourself, and all sorts of iterations of those comments reveal that somehow there's a self-evidence knowledge in me, and if I believe it's true and follow it, that's what really matters. We can blame the church and we can blame youth groups and we can blame people ad nauseum for why our young adults think that way, but it's not just our young adults, it includes adults as well. Mother Teresa, for her extraordinary, benevolent, incomparable work she has done, had done around the world, also said a Christian should try to be a good Christian, a Muslim should try to be a good Muslim, and a Hindu should try to be a good Hindu. We call this, in an abstract sense, moral relativism. There's a lot behind those two words, but for conversation's sake, it's what's true for you. Be the best at what, if you believe a faith system, believe it, and that's all that really matters. If you do your part and believe it well, and now we have a culture that worships tolerance above all other gods, little g. Jesus has something different to say. If you open your Bible today to Luke chapter 19, we will see the Christ giving us a very different answer. True truth as we see it or perceive it or my opinion or the way I look at things. Luke 19 verses 45 to 48. Luke 19 verses 45. Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling, saying to them, it is written, and my house shall be a house of prayer but you have made it a robber's den. Jesus cleans house. This is the second time the Christ has cleaned the temple area. The first is in John 2, recorded only in John 2. All four gospels record this account. Luke's is the most abbreviated because he has so much more information. I remind you, Luke is the longest gospel, includes more information unique to the gospel than the other three gospels, and it has the most vocabulary of the other gospels. He's a doctor, Dr. Luke. 
But this particular account, he truncates for reasons known to the Holy Spirit and to him, but we know enough of the other gospel records to know what is going on. Both times in John 2 and now were right before Passover. Jesus Christ is coming to celebrate Passover in Jerusalem. In the beginning of his ministry, his earthly ministry, he's going to Jerusalem to Passover. At the end of his ministry, he's going to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover, and he finds the money changers. This Passover would be probably the largest in all history because the rumors surrounding this would-be Messiah were far greater than we might appreciate being 2,000-plus years separated. This was the biggest event of the Jews' experience. This guy running around, performing miracles, saying things, incredible popularity, able to outsmart anyone to do things only Messiah could do, and he's going up to Passover. People who already are looking forward to it, many more are going because they were commanded annually to go up to Passover. When he comes to the outer court, he calls upon two prominent voices that every pious Jew would know, Isaiah and Jeremiah. And he takes quotations from each of those texts to say, you have turned my father's house into a robber's den, that you have made it what's supposed to be a house of prayer. Now we need to go back a little bit. In Exodus chapter 30, verse 11 and following, God told Moses some uh, statutes and commandments and memorials of different things that Israel was to obey. One of them was each year when they went up to Passover, every man 20 years and older was to give a half shekel contribution to the temple complex. And to put it in our vernacular, it was the operational fund for the tent of meeting in the wilderness as well as the physical temple complex that Solomon would build. And by Jesus' time, Herod had added on to extraordinarily. Twenty-two and a half football fields would encompass Herod's temple complex area where the Jew would go to. It was a huge area for the Jew to go up to worship. So they would ritualistically look forward to Passover. You always went up to Jerusalem to worship, no matter north, south, east, or west, you're going up to worship God. You sing the Ascent Psalms as you go up to worship. And it was a joyful celebration that all pious good Jews went to Israel. Now, this half shekel in Exodus 30 is also called a ransom, an offering, and an atonement. The word used in Hebrew is that was a ransom, that was an atonement, that was an offering for you as a sinful man. And it was the beginning of many shadows of what it meant to give an offering to the Lord. So each man would take a small denomination of coinage and contribute it. Now the money changing took place in the court of the Gentiles. And this money changing, if you're in a community group, the questions that Bill, Lloyd, and I work on during the week to help you if the community group does it that way, we have questions that go along with the passage. I'll take the CG groups that do that into some other areas of this. But there were sacrifices, animals, goats, uh, sheep, birds, oil, wine, salt, all kinds of things sold in the court of the Gentiles for your offering. Now we understand why. Deuteronomy 14 spoke of if the distance was too far where you were to travel to offer sacrifice, you bind your money in your hand, you go to the temple, and there you buy what you need for sacrifice. So part of the law prescribed an area, an avenue for them to buy what they needed for worship. 
Part of it they would contribute, part of it they would consume. And that was a celebration and a party. There was a solemnity of the solemnness of the, of the sacrifice, but celebration as well. This was a huge uplifting time for Israel to go. Now, the money changing, technically speaking, was like currency changing. If you travel to the south and you go to Mexico, you convert dollars into pesos and vice versa when you come home. If you go abroad, you change currency. The, the temple complex only allowed the Hebrew shekel. But the common coinage of the day was a Roman coin. So you had to exchange the currency. There was nothing wrong with the money changer the way it was supposed to work. And we have to look carefully at all the gospel accounts to understand this. Josephus talks about 10 days prior to Passover that the court of the Gentiles was converted into an area for people to change their money to be able to worship. So the aspect of having this set up was not the only thing that Jesus was upset about. In fact, I don't think that's what upset him at all. Luke says, those who were selling, the individuals. So I think we can connect the dots very soundly. Verse 46, it's written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a robber's den. He's accusing the changer of exploiting the worshiper. Or to put it another way, they turned the exchange, which should be a nominal price change, into a free market economy for them. And they're exploiting the worshiper and they're making a profit on the back of what was to go to the temple complex for an operational fund for the priests. The robber's den is a suggestive term in the Old Testament and it means the same as it did in in the Westerns. When they rob a bank, the gang meets up at a cabin four weeks later and there they divide the money. That's a robber's den in the Old Testament too. He says, you've turned what was the court of Gentiles, a place for exchanging currency for an offering, you've turned it into a robber's den where you merchants are profiteering and stealing from robber's den, stealing from God. And that's why I conclude that he was upset with them, not because of the transactions, but they're extorting and taking advantage of the worshiper. It was to be a prayerful place and an offering, not a place for people to make a profit. Now, sidebar. Every one of us, most of us, have been involved in churches that have had discussions about selling things in the narthex. Any of us been there besides me? Um, I've been in churches that you couldn't have a registration for a youth group or for a uh, women's Bible study that costs money in the narthex. By the way, the narthex only applies to certain churches in America. We have an arcade. I always think of clowns when I think of arcades. But anyway, we have an arcade. Other churches have a lobby, uh, a foyer, whatever you want to call it. And so churches have fought about this. I've been part of churches where you couldn't do anything out there. And I've been part of churches that had full-service bookstores and coffee bars. And I've had people complain on all continuums. And you probably have an opinion, too. When I came to fellowship, I had nothing to do with it. I love the way they do it. When Rob Howard put together the fellowship song CDs, he said, we're going to put them out there. And if people want to give to help for offset the cost, we'd like that. But we're going to give them away because we don't want any lack of decorum. We want them to have the worship music to go and enjoy in their car and their iPod and their MP3 players, but we don't want it to become a commercial thing where we're selling stuff. And I was like, sell it, go ahead, make a profit, you know, let's make some money on this thing. 
He's like, no, we need to do this with decorum. And I so appreciated his heart and approach to that. I think fellowship is a very good job of it. You may have a different opinion. You can pray for me as I always do for you. Back to the text, verses 47 to 48, Jesus teaching in the temple. And he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests and scribes and the leading men among the people were trying to destroy him. Literally, the word is kill. The net Bible says assassinate. I like that. They're trying to assassinate him. And they could not find anything that they might do for all the people were hanging on to every word he said. These two verses are one of Luke's extraordinary penmanship of a summary transition. He did the same in chapter 4, verse 14, when he spoke of the Galilean ministry. Luke compresses a transition of what's happening, and now he's going into Galilee to minister. In these two verses, we are now in the temple complex, daily teaching, and we have this audience of chief priests and other leaders. They're trying to kill him, and people are hanging on every word. He is now in Jerusalem. Lloyd Bill and I have been saying for weeks he's headed to Jerusalem. Now we're there. And now the book, the the tale will expand, although the time is very short in comparison to the rest of the gospel. Luke will give us extraordinary insights into these last few days of Christ's life before he is crucified, dead, buried, and resurrected. And we have this transition segment. Now, why do they go to temple? We need to step step back a bit and understand this. The Jew wanted to go to temple. They loved to go worship. Too often we hear the vilification of the law being hard and that we hate the law and the weight of the law. It's a very, it's an incorrect view of the law. The law was good. David says, I love your law. I love your word. What do we hate about it? We fail. We sin so often. We don't hate God's law. We fail at God's law. The pious good Jew loved, this is like getting ready for us for Christmas or for Thanksgiving or whatever your favorite time of year is. They loved to go up to Passover. It was an exciting time to sing those ascent psalms and to take their family in tow and to travel two, three days, maybe less, maybe more, to go up and spend a week there or more. It was a big deal to go up to worship. When Jesus shows up on the scene teaching and preaching the gospel, there's two responses. There's opposition and those who embrace him. The opposition, you'll notice, is comprised, there's three different groupings, but we have chief priests, scribes, and leading men. The leading men would be the Sanhedrin. We'll talk more about these in a moment. These three groups and some uh, others will now confront Jesus three times between now and when he's finally crucified. They're trying to trap him. They're trying to kill him. They're trying to destroy him. Luke has been recording this all along in his gospel. They want to kill him. And he again reminds us he's going there and he will be killed. In verse 48, we have a group that's embracing him. They're hanging on to every word he said. Now, if you've heard me speak more than one time, you know I have a lot of interest in politics. And I have been hanging on every word two politicians and their entourages have been saying forever. I am tired of hanging on every word. I can't wait for November 2 at about midnight to be here. I am ready for it to be November 3, no matter what happens. I am tired of hanging on to every word. Maybe you hang on to other people's words, but this is a great word picture, and it means exactly what it does in your Bible as it does today. Listening to everything he's saying. They can't wait to hear what he's going to say. 
The transition sets up the confrontation in chapter 20, the first eight verses. On one of the days, while he was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel. Let me just stop for a second there. Teaching is we think of exposition or didactic, a line-by-line explanations. Preaching the gospel is the gloss we use of the good news. Euangelion becomes the gospel. It's talking about the good news of what he's come, to die for men's sin, to pay for for our sins, to give us a new life by faith, by trust in Christ. So he's teaching, he's explaining the Old Testament, and he's preaching the gospel every day in the temple complex. Continuing, the chief priest and the scribes and the elders confronted him. And they spoke to him saying, tell us by what authority you are doing these things or who is the one who gave you this authority? Jesus answered and said to them, I will also ask you a question and you tell me. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Now Christ's teaching is challenged and it becomes a question of authority. You see, when someone is popular, it threatens the establishment. Popularity brings critique of the establishment, and popularity threatens the power base. And we have these Jewish groups that we'll talk about in a second, this religious, political, socioeconomic system of Judaism. It's hard for us to comprehend. It was all woven together. It's not separation of church and state as we worship here in our country. It's all woven together. Even at its worst, Judaism was a social, political, economical uh, system. And we have three named. The chief priest would be the temple or court officials. The scribes were the grammateus, the grammateus, grammar, the writers. They were attorneys by rabbinical training, and they were the jot and tittle ones. They were the smart ones, the academics we might think of, the professors we might attribute to them. And they were comprised of Sadducees and Pharisees who had very differing opinions. And then you have the elders who are the presbyteros here. The presbyteros term, uh, presbyter, presbyterian, Episcopos, Episcopalian, bishop. Presbyteros is a word that means an older man, like a statesman, we might think. Someone that we all respect. Someone who's lived and is wise. A Presbyteros. The Episcopos, scopos, looking over, one who overlooks. So the Episcopal has bishops. A bishop is an overseer. So the two words transmuted uh, into all sorts of different applications, they're used somewhat interchangeably, but for the Jew, the presbyteros meant this elder statesman, older man, that you, you listen to what he said. So you've got the compilation of the court officials, the chief priest, the Sadducees and Pharisees, the scribes, they're the academics, the ones who know the law very well, and then you have these elder statesmen, And this is a social, political, economic, governmental system that is coming up against Jesus. Now, they ask him two questions about his authority. We can break them out this way. By what authority you are doing these things? In other words, what is the kind of authority you have? Are you a rabbi? Are you a priest? Are you a prophet? Are you a king? That's the answer they're looking for. Secondly, they ask him... Or, who is the one who gave you this authority? And we can understand this a couple of ways. Um, If you were of the school of Gamaliel, you're trained by Gamaliel, so you're a a disciple of his. And you say, well, I I went to Harvard, Yale, Princeton, I went to UT. 
That's my pedigree. And so what they're asking him is, where do you get the authority to do these things? Because he's a popular guy who the masses are going after, hanging on every word he's saying, and they're threatened by this, and they're challenging his authority. By what authority are you doing these things? What he specifically did was he cleansed the temple. What he is doing is teaching and preaching in the temple complex, and they don't like the competition because it threatens the power base. In response, Jesus asks a counter question. Now, we need to understand rabbinics a little bit. When, when Lloyd Bill or I or someone you hear preach or speak, when we speak, we speak out of homework and study and so forth and so on. When politicians have speechwriters, they speak out of... That's not how rabbinics worked. Rabbinics in the Talmud was a, a case law experience. You never said, I think, or I believe, or I concluded, this seems to me. You quoted other rabbinic sources. And so you were a great scholar if you could, in other words, case law, if you could explain a whole lot of other brilliant rabbis and their opinions. So Rabbi so-and-so said this, and Rabbi so-and-so said that. If you ever see some of these period movies made around a, a Talmudic table argument, that's how it's done. And in the Mideastern culture, there's somewhat of a, uh, there might, it might look like arguments. It is in a way an argument, but that's how they work. They like a good, clean fight, if you will, verbally. And when you spend time in the Middle East, you'll begin to understand that if you're not threatened by it. They like someone who'll what, say what he or she thinks and stand up for it. They like a, a, a volatile discussion, a vibrant debate. So the counter question is very common in the way rabbinics was handled. So Jesus says, I'm going to ask you a question. Was the baptism of John from heaven? or from men? Now this is one brilliant question. Of course, Jesus asks it, but nevertheless, it's a brilliant question. And it doesn't take a lot of work to figure out why. And we're also going to see what their little convo was about the question, but let's just make some observations. Why would he choose John? Well, John's six months older than him. John's a forerunner, but John's origin is obscure. John had no official training. John was weird. He was weird. He lived out in the wilderness and he ate locust and honey. And all of his life is in obscurity until he comes and begins the repentant baptisms as the Jews coming up for the mikvah bath. We've talked about this early in the Gospel of Luke. I know you remember everything we've taught you. As they come up for the mikvah bath. And he says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, specifically to the Jew, not for the Gentile. Your Messiah is coming. You better get cleansed, would be the picture. And so the good Jew would go up to Passover. They would go through the mikvah ass. They would take their half shekel offering. If they had a guilt offering, a sin offering, uh, they would epaph a flower, an animal, a goat, doves, whatever they had to do for their guilt, sin offering, their thank offering, their contribution to the complex. It was a celebration. And John's out there saying, as they're coming up, repent for your king's coming. He's this obscure, crazy guy eating bugs and honey, living in the wilderness. He also had a band of disciples who loved him. They later called them the Essenes. John is not a person who joined the Essenes. The Essenes were a group of followers who took John's teachings a little too far, we might say. And they were a huge community. He had disciples. Remember when he's in prison, he sends his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one? John was revered and feared. Herod was afraid of him. Puts him in prison. 
So John is a similar character. And the people thought he was a prophet. So, verse 7, they reason among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from men, the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered, this is classic, they answered that they did not know where he came from. Jesus said to them, Nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. This is a wonderful inside fly-on-the-wall scoop of the deliberations of these leading Jewish men. Number one, acknowledge they are very intelligent, they are shrewd, and they are smart. Number two, they do not answer the question. In other words, when they have their convo, they don't say, did John come from men or did John come from heaven? They don't even discuss that. This meeting is a PR political positioning discussion. Now, it's brilliant. If, they, if he's from heaven, they're saying this. Jesus just tossed them the question. They're saying if he's from heaven, then you know what Jesus is going to say is, why didn't you believe him and follow him and do what he said? If we say for men, the people will stone us to death. Now, we need some help to understand that part. The penalty for a prophet who was a false prophet in Deuteronomy 13 was you take him out and stone him to death. A prophet had to be called and chosen of God to be a prophet. They were either to foretell or foretell something that God told them specifically to say. The prophet Isaiah, the prophet Jeremiah, Haggai, so on and so forth. So if a prophet spoke for God and he was, not, he was doing it out of his own ego, you kill him. Because God takes seriously his word. The converse of that is true. Listen to I. Howard Marshall. The penalty for a false prophet was stoning. Here, the same penalty is inflicted on those who deny the legitimacy of a true prophet. The people are representatives of the true Israel in, thre in threatening to stone the leaders. For the people were convinced that John was a prophet. So they turned around the principle, if you're a false prophet, we're going to kill you. If you're a leader and you don't accept God's true prophet, you're a false prophet too. We're going to kill you. Get the picture? So these men are truly fearful of the masses. So they punt and they say, we don't know. You got to love it. They don't want the truth. They're threatened by this man who's more popular than them. And this one man threatens their religious, social, economic system to the core. In fact, he's going to destroy it in the temple complex. The irony, of course, they try to trap him, and Jesus traps them. You've got to love Jesus. One of my professors often said of these questions, you could see the rabbis walking off going, who thought of that dumb question anyway? <laughs> render to Caesar, render to Caesar, give, to the, you know, the tax, give it to the Who thought of that stupid question about asking about taxes? You know? And so they would go off and convo and come up with a better question. Three more times they're going to run traps at him. What are they going to do at the end? Falsely accuse him because they can't find anything on him. Jesus is not playing mind games, however, Jesus is not trying to outsmart them or be clever. Jesus is done with them. As Luke has told us all along, they have now decided to kill him. And they're looking for opportunity. How? That's their goal. 
Their goal is not to debate him or understand him or ask good questions and learn from him. Their goal is to kill him. And he knows that. And he also knows his destiny. And he's come to teach and preach the gospel to those who want to hear it, not fight the religious establishment that wants nothing to do with them but to kill him. They're of their own opinion. Their objective truth is Jesus is not Messiah. Their objective truth is he has no authority. And they're going to carry that to their natural conclusion. Christ, of course, will take it differently. The Jewish leaders were concerned for the temple complex. You remember earlier in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. And they mock him thinking he's talking about the temple complex. It took hundreds of years of building from Solomon's time clear up to the first century in Herod's time. What's he talking about? Himself. The passage I read before we broke the Lord's Supper. There's no temple complex in the eschatological future of the new Jerusalem. The temple, when you go see the model in Israel and you, go, you look at it, it's phenomenal from its history of Mount Moriah where Abram offered Isaac, almost offered Isaac as sacrifice all the way up to the monstrosity that Herod built in the time that Jesus walked in the temple complex. 22 and a half acres in land mass at the top of Mount Moriah today. It's huge. And the porticos that Solomon added for people in clusters would celebrate and talk and dialogue with rabbis and Q&A and hear expositions and rabbinic teachings and worship and offer sacrifice and eat and celebrate and party for a week or more. It was a huge part of the fabric of the culture. The religion, the politics, the social system, all of it tied together in a theocracy, understanding this concept. And they now worshipped the bureaucracy and their position not the God of the temple. They turned it into an enslavish religion, excising prophets. And this is another reason I think Jesus overturns the money changers because that money is going into the backs of the chief priest pockets and others who are involved in the trading of those animals and sacrifices that the pilgrim worshiper would buy. It used to be four to one, now it's 10 to one. Speculation on my part, but I think it's sanctified speculation. At the core is, does Jesus have authority? And what kind of authority? Well, here's the so what. What will it take for you and me to see Jesus' authority superseding everything in our experience in life? What will it take for you and me to see Jesus' authority superseding our emotions, our experiences, our reality. Americans have become morally relativistic. It's an oversimplification, but just for an illustration, to kill a spider is the same as to kill an unborn child. To have clean water and clean air and no toxins and no pollutants is, and, and have green sustainable energy is just as important, if not more important, than the life of an unborn child, than the definition of marriage. These are morally relativistic debates. An objective truth is put to the plate. Is the life more important than the tree? Moral relativism says no. It's an oversimplification, but it's an accurate assessment and the problem with us as Americans, we have been so pillared and pushed and confronted and we get our feelings hurt that we get in the corner and we say, well, I guess we got to be tolerant of everybody. I guess we got to be nice. I guess we got to be loving and kind and we can't be haters and, 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 we, and we get, we, we're wimps. Darkness never stops. And that's why they win. 
But to be gentle and firm and kind and stand on the authority of Christ is a whole different ballgame. If I understand Christ's words as the authority, why would I fear man? If you understand Christ's word in your life, why do you put your experience ahead of your theology? As I say so often, don't let the world teach you theology. You know, we get in these small groups that we have, and, um, you know, years ago I went to this this homiletics workshop. That means how to preach better. I went to this workshop, and um, we were talking to all these gurus in communication field today, and they said, when you talk to the the millennial generation, you you understand, you can't say this is a truth and they'll accept it. You have to dialogue with them. And you have to be authentic and vulnerable and transparent or they won't listen to you. Now, that's all true. Those of you in the 20s and 30s would say, yeah, that's right. If, If I can't dialogue about it and I don't think you're vulnerable and transparent, I don't care what you say, it's not true. But if you're vulnerable, transparent, we can talk about it, then I might believe it. Let's think about that for just a minute. This is a piece of oak. It was built by a man in our church. It's got five screws that hold it to the pedestal. It's about a three-quarter inch piece of material. It's one piece of oak, I think. I looked last night to see if it had a seam in it. Objective truth. This is a piece of oak. Well, I didn't give you a chance to talk about it. You didn't give me your opinion and dialogue. It could be a piece of pine stained to look like oak. How do I know it's oak? How do you know it's oak? It's an objective truth. It's oak. Ludicrous example, but it's true. So what do we do in in small groups today? Forgive me. We pool our ignorance. (laughs) What do you think this passage means? I hate that question. Read a verse. What does it mean to you? I really don't care what it means to you. I care what God meant. Do you see the difference? And we've been sucked into a moral, relativistic culture that says my opinion and my experience and my feelings are more important than the objective truth. I'm here to tell you as a friend, no, they're not. If you don't like the law of gravity, go try to fight it. (laughs) Climb on the roof today, please, when no one's here so we're not liable, and walk off and try to dialogue with it before you do it. See if it's authentic and transparent and vulnerable and pull your ignorance with the law of gravity and then step off the edge of the roof and see who wins. If a truth is true, why do I care what somebody feels about it? Do you understand what I'm saying? And this has become part of the American mind from the high school to the university. I have to accept your belief system. You have to accept my, well, you don't accept mine, frankly. I'm the one you don't have to accept. You have to accept everybody else's feelings and religious systems and values and philosophies or you're intolerant and you're a hater. Our enemy is very smart. And the challenge is, can I trust Christ at his word and smile and be gentle and firm and not flinch and say, piece of oak, friend. I think Christ is God. You want to debate that and discuss it? Fine, but I think he's God. And I think he loves you. And I think he died for your sins and mine. And I will not back down and be tolerant of someone who tells me I can't believe that. And that's exactly what Christ was up against when he talked to the religious leaders of the day. They're worried about their position, their power, their system, their bureaucracy, and this one outlier popular guy who people were hanging on his every word. 
Last question. Well, almost. The great theologian Gandalf said, There's only one Lord of the Ring, only one who can bend it to his will, and he does not share power. What will it take for you, for me, when you open this book in the morning, I hope and pray, and you read it, that you will hang on every word? That you will so know the God of your salvation who loves you, who forgives you, who has all you need to live, that his word is more important than any word on the planet. If you get up every morning or before you go to bed and you spend some time with his word and his spirit and you read 5, 10, 20, an hour, and when you when I die and learn that you went home and read your Bible on a consistent basis, not because you have to, because you can, not because you get to, but you should because you get to, not because you need to check a box on a reading schedule, but you want to know the mind of God. And will you, like Luke said, they were hanging on every word because he's the God of all creation. And it's here in 85 different flavors. And any size, shape, and form, electronic, in your pocket, on your device, or a real Bible for real people. <laughs> His mind in print, or is what the culture says more important.